Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started, and as people are still coming in, just make yourself at home. Uh, let me give you a preview of coming attractions before we begin this, just a couple of announcements. One, this lesson is the last in our series of Straight Talk for Modern Christians. It's a study of Ephesians. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's made you want to go read the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, uh, because the issues that they confront are just as controversial and difficult today as they were then. Next Wednesday, we'll start a new summer session. This will be our only adult class. So it'll be, I mean, it'll still be dinner, still be kids things, but this will be our uh, adult class. We're going to do a series. It's just three weeks, but it's basically the history of everything. I know that's ambitious in three lessons. But what I'd really like to do, this is going to be the precursor to a set of series that we'll do later that really dive into the Bible pretty deeply and look at its themes. But this series is we're going to look at the history of humanity and how God has been involved. So if you like history, you will really like this. There will be maps. I'm just going to warn you now. But we, I want to talk about history in a really engaging way. You will not have to memorize dates, when, who won the Battle of Hastings, or you know, none of that. It's just going to be the story of humanity, but it's rarely ever told from the perspective of the Bible and history are intimately linked. The Bible isn't happening outside of history. It's part of it. God's actually doing interesting things. We'll talk about everything from Egyptian mummies to Chinese empires and just what's going on in the world, and we'll just tell a story as we go through. So in that three lessons... I hope you'll have a really good vision of the history of humanity and what it means, what's really going on in it. So I think it'll be a fun series. So that's what we'll start off next Wednesday. We'll finish this one this Wednesday. One other announcement is after class tonight, we'll have an informational meeting in here for anybody who's interested, and it'll be brief, uh, about the Israel trip coming up in November. One of the things Crossings is doing is getting into discipleship trips. In other words, this isn't just tourism. We see a lot of great sites, but it's also a study tour. So we have some brochures. There's information on the website about the sites and the price and everything, but we wanted to have an informational meeting. We have some brochures here and just answer a few basic questions. So if you're interested in that, stick around for just a few minutes afterwards, and we'll talk about that. If not, you'll see it in the bulletin. Uh, we can only... We're limiting the size of each group to about 55 people because that's the best experience. But uh, So if you're interested in that, great company, really good price for this, and uh, it'll be a great discipleship tour. So we'll do that at 7.30 right after class for a few minutes. Okay, moving into this, let me just remind you, text your questions, and I know we don't get to answer all of them, and some of them I try to send a text answer back if we don't get to it in class. Uh, nope, can't promise we do that with everyone, but I try to. And you guys ask some really great questions, and that's really helpful. Well, this lesson, if you remember where we've been, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus in that region, has answered some interesting questions. We talked about, last time, social justice. What is a Christian, uniquely Christian approach to social justice issues? to humanitarianism and justice in the world and political solutions to problems. We talked before that about gender roles and what, uh, you know, what is the biblical approach to gender. It's radically different than our culture, but actually it's a, a very well 
uh, reasoned approach to gender roles. So a little different perspective on that. In this lesson, right at the end of the book of Ephesians, what Paul's going to do is take all of those issues and sort of gather them up and give you a, a rationale for how Christians see the world differently. And that explains a lot of these items. So what we want to talk about is the idea of spiritual warfare. And here are some questions that we will answer. Is, are there evil forces at work in the world? which is a, a serious question to our culture. Another question is, uh, are Satan and demons real? And a question I think is particularly relevant for us is, can I believe in Satan and also science? How does that work? In other words, are Christians inherently superstitious? Are Christians at odds with science? How do we reconcile these views? So we're gonna answer those questions as we go through this. But Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. He ends the letter in this way. He says, as for the rest, or finally, he says, all these issues we've talked about, strengthen yourselves, this is a better translation, strengthen yourselves in the Lord and in the might of his power, or in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. That Greek word, by the way, is panoply. In other words, the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, since that's true, since that's what our struggle is really with, Put on the armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground, and when you are fully prepared, you'll be able to stand. So, Paul says, listen, a lot of the rationale for this is we don't see things the way the world sees things. We don't think that our struggles are inherently against other people. That's our natural thought, is when something happens, so-and-so cut me off in traffic, or something bad happened because these people are doing the wrong thing. People do evil things. The Bible's not saying that it, a lot of the things that happen to us are not the result of other people. But Christians believe that there's actually more than that going on. Let me take just a little sideline and talk about two ideas that are very prevalent in our culture. The idea of materialism and the idea of naturalism. These ideas, whether you're familiar with these words or hear them much, are embedded in our culture, embedded in our culture. It's all over our educational system. If you wanna think about it this way, if we were fish, the water we swam in would be called materialism and naturalism in our culture. And here's what I mean by that. Materialism as a philosophy is the idea, now this sounds simple, but it has profound implications. The idea that matter is all that exists and all phenomena can be explained and are the result of either the properties of matter or the interaction of matter. In other words, everything that happens in the universe, everything that happens inside you, including your thoughts and your mind, they are all a function of matter. So materialism, for example, would say that when you die, when your brain dies, you completely cease to exist because matter is all that's real and everything is the result of the interaction of matter. Whether it's 
you know, black holes in space, whether it's supernovas or it's the thought of beauty and love that you have in your mind. It's all a result of matter. When we say materialism, we usually mean something that comes from this, and that's the idea that we're materialistic, meaning we, we want things. We think things will satisfy us and solve our problem. That idea of materialism comes very much from this. In other words, what really matters in life, that's the social version of the scientific idea of materialism. The social version of that is, well, if matter is all that really exists, then stuff is what's really important. Hence, materialistic people who want more stuff. It's the same uh, idea. Naturalism goes hand in hand with that. It says that everything then can be explained in terms of natural material forces. This is what every public school child is being taught. This is the foundation for current Western scientific thinking. It is not, I just want to give, tell you this, historically, this has not necessarily been the foundation of scientific thinking. Because today you're going to be taught, if you want to do science, you have to be a materialist and you have to be a naturalist. In other words, this is the only way to think about the universe if you want to be a scientist. That's actually not true. There are more and more Christians who are top-notch scientists, and we'll talk about that. And historically, some of the greatest scientists in history have not been naturalists. They have felt like there's more to this universe than just matter, and you can't explain everything through simply material, materialism. These ideas are literally, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing, I'm just telling you literally, spiritually empty and proud of it. In other words, if you believe that everything is, matter is all that there is and everything can be explained in terms of natural processes, there is no room for spirits or any kind of spiritual being. There's no room for a soul. There's no room for you being different than other animals in any particularly significant way. In other words, there's no spiritual component to this whatsoever. This is kind of the predominant thinking in our humanistic society. Christians, the Bible, and Paul obviously, does not see the world this way. In fact, there's a great uh, line, I'll show, show you this line in a second, but those of you who studied, uh, who have read Shakespeare, uh, back in high school because you had to. I've, I've yet to meet anybody who actually reads it because they want to. I mean, maybe there's some people out there, but we had to read Shakespeare. And if you read Hamlet, you, there's this really interesting scene in Hamlet where Hamlet is talking to the ghost of his father. And Hamlet's buddy, his name is uh, Horatio, is really not grasping this. Horatio is the perfect secular humanist in this. And this is what Hamlet says to him as he's trying to grasp what is going on. He says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And that line's always stuck with me because that's exactly what the Bible has to say to the materialistic approach of this world. It says, there are more things in this heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy of materialism. And that's what the Bible thinks. That's what, that's what we would conclude is that there is more to the universe than just materialism. The Bible is going to go even further than that because actually my contention is most people actually believe that. 
most people think there's more here than just matter. And I'm not talking about Christians. Any religion you can think of thinks that. Even spiritual people, new age, mysticism, think that there's more here than just materialism. So I don't want you to think this is just a matter of Christians versus secular, what they'll call scientific thinking. It's really a lot of people think there's more to the universe than this. But specifically, Christians believe, and the Bible teaches, much more specific things than that. It teaches the idea that our struggle, in other words, not just that there might be supernatural things, and I mean that literally. Naturalism says the only things that really exist are natural. Energy, mass, uh, you know, the subatomic particles, which we keep inventing new ones every day. Supernatural means something that's not natural. Don't understand supernatural to mean ghosts on the reality TV shows on TV, okay? That's, that's called superstition. But supernatural is a very idea. It just says there's more than you can experience and see with your scientific instruments or your eyes, that there are supernatural things. And so the Bible says not only are there things beyond nature, those things are driving forces in our world that our struggle fundamentally, what we are about as humanity, has more to do with that than it does to do with flesh and blood and the natural things. The universe is not mad at us, but there are spiritual forces that are. Does that make sense? In other words, if you ask the question, why do tsunamis happen? Tsunamis happen because that's the way the universe works. In other words, earthquakes happen because that's the way the earth works. The question becomes, why is there evil in the world? And the scriptures say that's a real supernatural force in the world, that our struggle is really against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we want to talk a little bit about what they are because the scriptures want to talk specifically about this. The Bible talks about, I'm going to tell you what those evil forces are, that there, there are creatures who are not flesh and blood, and they're called angels. Angels are created beings. They are beings that are not confined to the four dimensions of our existence. In other words, there is a realm where God exists that is spirit. And all that word really means, I mean, I know what it means in our head. You think Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? But what it really means is this is super or beyond what you understand is natural. I mean, it's all natural to God, but he says, you see these dimensions, and, but there is way more than you see. There are realms here, and we'll call them spiritual. Angels are spiritual beings. They're beings inhabit that realm. They are created by God, and they exist to serve God. It's an example of some passages. Uh, for example, an angel named Gabriel. By the way, the word angel means messenger. And so the, even the idea there is these are some created beings who serve a function of being messengers or agents, if you will, of God. One of them named Gabriel comes and speaks to Zechariah and says, I stand in the presence of God. 
In other words, I inhabit that realm. I have been sent to tell you something. Uh, look at Jesus. A couple of times he says, the Son of Man is going to come in glory with his angels. In other words, with these other beings that are similar in some ways, but not like us. Uh, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels come with him, he'll sit on the throne in heavenly glory. The idea of heaven, the word spiritual, means something to us, but it's, think of those as words that are describing what to us is an indescribable plane of existence, if you will. In other words, there's more than just the physicality of this universe. There is this entire realm that we do not experience. Let's call that the heavenly realms or the spiritual realm. So the angels are created beings. They serve God. They inhabit that realm. And there is a particular angel called Satan. Satan is, uh, and the Bible is not particularly interested in telling us about the origin of Satan, but I'm going to read you two passages from Scripture that most people think give us a clue to what, who is Satan. Satan is an angel who rebels against God. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, most people understand this passage, by the way, as a reference to uh, Satan. It's in a different context, but Ezekiel 28, I'll just read you part of this passage, verse 12 and following. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, that's a name for an angel, a function of an angel. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. In other words, you inhabit this other realm. But your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. In other words, Satan is the name of this angel or a description because Satan means the accuser or the adversary. Another word that's uh, used is uh, that means deceiver. In other words, it's in uh, Job, for example, it's called the Satan, the adversary. In other words, this particular being who has rebelled set himself against God. There's another passage in Isaiah that talks about uh, Satan as well, and you're probably familiar with this. Again, this context is talking about someone else, but most people understand this because of the nature of what it's saying to be talking about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. I'll give you the short version. In Latin, when that was translated into Latin, the Vulgate, one of the words in there that morning star, son of the dawn is where the word Lucifer comes from. In other words, it's a combination of a couple of Latin words, and just tradition came to be that, oh, this is the name of this being, and hence Lucifer is oftentimes said, that's the name of that angel who we call Satan, the adversary, the accuser. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, and here's the nature of Satan's rebellion, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. 
I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, I'm going to be God. I don't know about you guys, but I've worked some places where I've said, look, I don't like the way this place runs. I think we're going to take over. Last place was my high school, and it didn't work out. But anyway, you get the idea of what Satan's rebellion is. He says, I want to be God. This is going to be about me. I'm going to rule the universe, not you. And so he's in rebellion. He becomes the adversary. He becomes the deceiver of people. Well, you can imagine what happens there in that scenario is things don't go so well for Satan, for this angel who rebels and the angels who are with him. And consequently, just a couple passages. Here's Jesus speaking in Luke 10. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, most people understand this as the Satan was cast out of heaven because of his rebellion. Remember the passages that say, I threw you down to the earth. And then this passage in Revelation chapter 12 talks about how there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon is Satan, the imagery in the Revelation and the dragon and his angels, in other words, angels who were rebelling with him fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven and the great dragon was hurled down. The great dragon is that ancient serpent, I think Garden of Eden, called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so the Bible explains that there are these beings that called angels, I mean, that's the word we use for them, that really is more of a functional description of what they do in this spiritual realm, this supernatural realm, and that there's rebellion. And so Satan, this force of evil, are these group of beings who are opposed to God and consequently opposed to you and me. Satan's purpose is that he wants to rule the world. In other words, he wants to be God. So that's the story from the scripture's point of view of not only are there spiritual forces, but who are they and what are they? And that sets the stage now why Paul can say our struggle is not really against humanity, flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces at war in the heavenly realms. That makes sense? This is the biblical view that explains what's happening on earth and what's happening in human history. Okay? Any questions? Because I want to talk about what they're doing in just a second, but this is a good place to pause. Okay. Do angels have free will? Can they continue to sin? There's nothing. Do angels have free will and can they continue to sin? That's a great question. Most of what we know about angels and demons, by the way, if you look on the website, there's a whole series on this. We went into great detail. I tell you that in case you just want to know a lot more than I can answer in this question. Most of what you know about this is inference rather than specifically told to us. In other words, the Bible's not terribly, it's terribly interested in telling you that there are spiritual forces. That's our struggle. It talks about Satan, but it really isn't interested in telling, well, let me just tell you everything you wanted to know about Satan. So a lot of what we know is inference. Clear inference is that obviously angels have the ability to choose to rebel, since Satan did. And there is no reason to believe that they, do, that they are not, in some sense, free agents as we are. 
In other words, they've been given some sense of the ability to obey or the ability to disobey. And so we infer that from what Satan did. And so the, uh, the inference that I would take is that, yes, they are. They are, in some sense, like we are, moral agents, able to choose obedience or disobedience. Do you think that spiritual, wealth, um, spiritual warfare is in any way healthy for someone growing in faith? Do I think spiritual warfare is healthy for anyone growing in faith? Yes, healthy in any way. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. What I think might be meant by that is, I think it's crucial as a Christian to understand what the Bible teaches, and that is because it's really crucial to understanding why we think the way we think. In other words, this idea, by the time we get to the end of this lesson, you'll see, this idea is actually not just disconnected. At the end of the letter, Paul said, hey, I think I'll just talk to you about spiritual warfare and Satan for a while. His point is, all these things I've been explaining to you, you know, gender roles and social justice and unity in the church and how you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the word. Remember all these ideas? He says, actually, I want you to understand that those ideas are really part of a bigger worldview. In other words, the reason for a lot of the things that we think is because of what we understand to be happening in the world, that there is this spiritual warfare. I think that's important to understand. There are forces of evil in the world, that God has a story of redemption, how we have also chosen to rebel. That's important. Here's what I think can be detrimental, is getting very fixated on the idea that there are demons and Satan around every corner and they're focused on me and everything that happens to me is in some sense all supernatural. Does that make sense? In other words, it's, it's easy to take any idea and bring it front and center and it becomes the focus of our lives. Some people do that with the end times. Some people do it with spiritual warfare. So I, I think it can be detrimental if we are either A, afraid because there is no reason to be afraid, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but also if we just let that color everything we think. It is important to understand we are part of something much bigger and we see the world differently. It's not terribly helpful to look for demons behind every door. I hope that roughly answers that question. Did the realm of hell exist before God cast Satan down? Did the realm of hell exist before God cast Satan down? The scripture says specifically, you want to be careful about reading too much into this, but he talks about that, okay, this gets complicated, so I'll make it easy, but the passage in Peter that actually talks about it uses a Greek word called Tartarus, which is translated hell. It's not the word that's normally translated hell, but let me just paste over all the subtleties and say, the scripture says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. In other words, that is a place prepared for them. Okay? I'm going to suggest to you that hell is a little bit different than the traditional ideas we take from the Middle Ages. In other words, the biblical idea of hell is a little bit different, but fundamentally it is a place prepared for the devil and his servants. So that, that's specifically what the scripture says. Okay? Well, let's talk a little bit more about what Satan and demons are doing. Again, we can't talk about everything about Satan or everything about demons. I want to talk about enough to get to the point of how does Paul understand this is really undergirding a lot of what we're talking about. It's not so much the demons and what they're doing. It's the idea that there is 
the reality of spiritual warfare. In other words, there's more going on in the world than just material things. There's more happening in our lives than just the simple little cause and effect of physical things. Satan and the demons have functions. They're things they're doing. One for angels, by the way, is this great passage in Hebrews, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who are inherit salvation. This is an interesting idea that God employs his army of angels, his messengers, his agents, these spiritual beings for your and my welfare, specifically meaning, okay, forget what you've seen on television that you have an angel who's here to just do whatever it can do to make your life work out. It's a bigger picture. It's God plans good for you and angels are helping to implement that. In other words, they are here to minister, to strengthen, to help God shape us into what he wants us to be. I don't want you to think fairy godmother here. If I could just get the name and the number of my guardian angel, I could text him and he would give me all kinds of stuff. Yeah, wrong idea. But the idea that they are here enlisted to help move God's plan for us forward. And that's kind of where the idea of guardian angels comes from. Uh, the idea of maybe Daniel 10, uh, something Jesus said about children, their angels stand in the Father. But you get, it's not a bad idea. It can be carried too far and that way more than the scripture says, but the idea that angels are on our side, maybe that's a good way to say it, you know, that God's plan for us, they're on our side. Satan, on the other hand, is very much at work in the world, but he is not here for your welfare. This is a scene uh, from the temptation called the temptation of Christ. And you remember Jesus, uh, Satan comes and tempts him and says, all of these kingdoms of the world are mine and I can make them yours. Remember he says, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything on this earth. That's an interesting claim. What does that mean? Satan says, this world belongs to me. And you know what? Jesus agrees with him. Because uh, several times in the scriptures, John 12, John 14, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians, Satan is referred to as the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, which we read earlier, Satan is talked about the prince or the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. In other words, he's the ruler of this world. Jesus says, you know what, you are. Remember what Satan wanted to do? He said, I'm going to be God. And I'll tell you what, see these puny beings here that you think are going to worship you? Uh-uh, they're going to worship me. And that's why at the temptation, Satan can say, I can give you the entire earth. I can let you, if you'll worship me, I'll let you be in charge of this earth. And Jesus says, actually, we have a different plan, but I appreciate your offer, but I think we'll just take it back because you didn't make it, God made it, and I think we're going to reclaim it. And so my kingdom is coming. Do you see where I'm getting at with this? Christians have a different way of looking at what's happening in the world. And that is that God is reclaiming his creation from, from a usurper who says, I own it, and in fact, he kind of does own it. But that's what Satan is about. This is the Christian idea of what's happening in the supernatural world, that Satan is about dominating the world. And he does that in a variety of ways. He's known as the accuser, the uh, adversary, he's ad he is your adversary. He does not want you to be a follower of Christ. He does not want you to grow spiritually. He has the power to deceive. 
And I think you see that played out very well in our culture. There are big lies in our culture. Remember what Jesus said about Satan? He said, your father is Satan. He lies. He is the father of lies. In other words, he is a deceiver by telling you lies. And there are great lies in our culture. Stuff can make you happy, right? The more things you have, the more important you are. I mean, there are many lies in our culture that turn out to be very empty, but they're great ways for Satan to bind us. Uh, here's a great one. You are the most important being in the universe, and everything should be done your way. Self-centeredness is one of the great tools of Satan. Those are ways that Satan enslaves the world. This is the Christian understanding of what's really happening here. It's, that's why Christians are not actually very much into self-help. Self-help is a very materialistic kind of an idea. Does this make sense? In other words, I have the power in my brain to change everything and turn myself into a better being. There's no question that Christians believe in you participating. You actually have to do some stuff. But we don't think that our abilities and our powers are going to turn us into the perfect human being. We actually think there's more happening here, and we need help. In other words, there's spiritual battles happening, not just, oh, I think I want to break a few bad habits. Christians are, are really not that into self-help. Christians are into God help, not self-help. The other thing Satan does is it says, Peter says this, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Oh, that sounds scary. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Satan has, doesn't have the ability to come into your brain, take over your body, and walk you around. Uh, that's, to me, that's a clear teaching of Scripture for Christians. Satan has the ability to lie to you. Satan has the ability to use temptations against us. In other words, Satan would like to do whatever he could to hold us back from growing in Christ and becoming uh, like Jesus Christ. That's his mission, because when you follow Christ, you're not following him, and his goal is to be the God of this universe. That's what the scripture says is the fundamental thing that is happening in the world. That explains the why of a lot of what happens in the world for Christians. Well, the implications of that, and here's where Paul wants to talk about, so what this means for you is that you need help. In other words, we need to lean on the Lord's mighty power because the battle isn't something that can be won by me picking up a sword or picking up a machine gun or just tough my, you know, be so tough that I'll just make it. And the word says, this isn't just a matter of physical flesh and blood. There are spiritual warfare, and for that, we need help. We need to rely on the Lord's power. That's why Christians are people of faith, not just people of rules. Does this make sense? If we just needed to be good soldiers, we might just have a list of rules. Exercise five times a day, take your vitamins, develop great muscles. That's not Christianity. Christianity says become and exercise your faith. Why? Because that is spiritually powerful. It's a spiritual battle, requires spiritual tools. There are supernatural weapons for a supernatural war. And Paul goes on, and that's what he talks about. 
He says, stand firm then. This is verse 14 and following, and you're probably familiar with this passage called the armor of God. But listen to what he's talking about. He says, this isn't about flesh and blood. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be big. You don't have to be tall. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to be brilliantly intelligent. Here's how you want to equip yourself for this battle. The belt of truth. The foundation of your life is truth. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness, that right relationship with God, the readiness of the gospel of peace, take up a shield of faith, which is what is going to protect you from the devil's schemes or the arrows. He uses kind of this martial imagery. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit you know, of God, the very spirit of God that's in us, Ephesians 1.13. Back earlier in the book, he said, you're special because when you believed, God put his spirit in you. Why? Why would he do that? Because there's a spiritual battle happening, and you need to be armed for that. And this is the arms. Does that make sense? And he ends it with saying, and pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. These are the tools with which we fight the spiritual battle. Does that make sense? This is a Christian view of the world, and it's a little bit different. We understand what's happening in the world and how we're going to approach it really differently than our culture. So let's answer a couple of questions then. Hopefully that kind of frames it up. Are spiritual forces at work in the world? The answer to that is yes, there are. And as a matter of fact, most people think so. They, if they aren't Christian, if they aren't they don't read the Bible, they understand it in various different ways. Everything from what you would call radically superstitious, like there are spirits in the rocks, there are spirits in the trees, there are life-animating spirit, um, Luke Skywalker, may the force be with you. You know, these are ideas about there's something more than matter. They're supernatural things. They're spiritual things. The Bible says, no, I'll tell you the truth. There's a very coherent understanding here. There is God, there's a spiritual realm, these beings, they have free will, they rebel, and you see what's happening here is a battle between the idea of obedience and rebellion to God, and that's playing itself out in the world. So yes, there are spiritual forces at work in the world. A sharper question is, are Satan and demons real? A lot of ways to answer that. The clear teaching of the Bible is absolutely this isn't just blind forces happening. This is intelligence. It's personality. These are beings fighting beings. Jesus obviously believed so. And I don't mean Jesus believed this in a superstitious way, like, hey, guys, there are evil spirits around. Jesus believed this in a very specific way. There is this entity called Satan, and he is cast out of heaven, and he wishes to do you harm, and I have power clearly supernatural power. The miracles that Jesus did were signs to you that A, there's more here than you can understand, and B, Jesus is in control of it. And so he's explaining in the miracles there are supernatural things happening here, and trust me, believe in me, that's the same word, believe me, Jesus says, because I am the answer to the spiritual battles. I can equip you, and we will overcome. He that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. That's the meaning of that passage in 1 John, is that take heart. Jesus says, don't be discouraged. 
I have overcome the world. What does he mean? Overcome Satan. We win this spiritual battle, and he will equip us to do that. So yes, Jesus believes Satan and demons are real. He believes it explains a lot of what's happening with us. And then finally, can I believe in Satan and also believe in science? I want to talk about this one for a minute because I don't... The, our culture has made it kind of a schism. You can be scientific or you can be Christian. You can be superstitious or you can be rational. That's actually historically a fairly new schism, and it's very artificial schism because uh, I'm going to argue that, yes, you can believe in Satan and science. As a matter of fact, you most certainly should. In fact, Christians traditionally have led to the great discoveries in science. Uh, and I know that sounds kind of crazy by modern thinking, like, well, how could these ignorant, superstitious Christians do any science? Look at your history books. Good heavens. Christians have done the great science and continue to do great science. And there's no reason not. As a matter of fact, we should be robustly interested in science and the universe that God has made. We actually think there's meaning in it. We think there's order in it. We understand when we see a finely tuned universe, you familiar with that idea? That everyone has to admit, the universe appears to be very finely tuned for life. What a coincidence. In other words, we don't think it's a coincidence. We think this is explicable. Christians make great scientists. So we should be robustly pursuing it. But here's what we understand. And this is where I think Christians are uniquely positioned to do science well. We understand that science, the study of material naturalistic processes, is a great servant and a terrible master. In other words, we think natural processes happen. We think physics is real. We're really interested in that and discovering that. We think it can explain to us what the world is and how it works. We do not, and we are not under the illusion that it could ever explain to us why anything is happening. Does that make sense? You cannot explain the why of life in science. It's simply not equipped to do that. We're very comfortable with that. If you're a secular humanist, you're a materialist or a naturalist, this just annoys the fire out of you because you have to go somewhere else to get the answer of why is anything even here? That is not a question that science can answer. I don't mean it's not a question science doesn't answer. It's not a question science can answer. Christians make great scientists. We love it. We just don't expect it to be everything in our lives. We accept the fact that there are bigger and other things happening. Does that make sense? I think a biblical view is great for science. I think science run amok is a very bad thing. I think that's where you get things like weapons of mass destruction. Stop and think about this. I know I'm painting with a broad brush, and I don't mean this to be offensive, but I just want to point out the obvious. We think that's wrong. And you're probably going to say, well, hey, so do all the scientists in the world. Apparently not. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you are nothing more than material processes, if you cease to exist, if there is no inherent value in humanity, what is your reason? In other words, 
Materialistic ethics look very different than Christian ethics. We believe things about the dignity of humanity that other people do not. My point is we need more Christians to be scientists. Here's some of the really interesting things, though, that you get into with materialism that Christians are not really going to struggle with. Two interesting theories right now, uh, neither of which I will contend, and actually a lot of scientists contend, is not a scientific theory, but you probably heard about both of them. One of them is called uh, string theory, or more appropriately right now, it's called M-theory. But here's the basic understanding. I'm just going to tell you this without any, any of the mathematics, but I just want to tell you this story, and you're going to go, that sounds superstitious. It certainly does. So you've got all these little quantum particles, right? We've got your protons and neutrons and electrons. Forget that. We've got at least 46 more, right? We've got all these things. But the question then becomes, what's the unifying force? What's really at the bottom? What's the real reality? One of the interesting uh, theories, uh, probably 40 years old or so, is the idea of string theory. And the idea that there's these little one-dimensional things. Think of them as kind of little worm-type things. And they vibrate. And they're the basic building block of matter. And that they vibrate this way, you get a proton. Vibrate that way, you get a neutron, etc. But they can explain things. Problem. In order for that to work out, you originally needed 26 different dimensions, and let's just short-circuit it. You now need 11 different dimensions. That's kind of a problem because we really only experience four, right? Height, length, width, and time, moving on. It says, yeah, that's not enough for this theory. The ultimate nature of reality has seven additional physical dimensions. Is that starting to sound a little supernatural to you? You can't see them. You can't experience them, but I need them to explain the nature of reality. Now, you help me understand how that's any different. And, and a lot of scientists object to this because, A, you can't test it, and, B, it doesn't sound like a scientific theory. In other words, you know what it sounds a lot like? Well, there are these spirits called strings. Can't see them, can't find them, but they're real, and they impact the world. Does that make sense? In other words, when you see science get to the ultimate, trying to get down to the ultimate nature of reality, it starts to sound really weird. Here's another great theory. It's called uh, multiverse theory. Some big names really like this idea. A lot of scientists don't because, again, it's very difficult to test. Well, it's actually probably untestable. If it's untestable, it doesn't fit in science. But the idea that our universe, how did it come to pass? That's trouble. That's just difficult. Well, let's just say it's one of many, 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 many other universes. How did our universe become so finely tuned to have life? Not a problem. There are an infinite number of universes, and the others aren't. We just are lucky enough to be living in the one that was. Well, that doesn't actually explain where our universe comes from. You just actually have made it infinitely more difficult. Where did they all come from? Right? But the, I, you see what I'm saying is you begin to explore the limits of science. I'm not trying to make fun of science. I'm saying there are inherent limitations as to how far science can explain. And I, I want to point these two ideas out because when you boil this down, it doesn't sound very much different than any other spiritualistic religion out there. My contention is Christians make great scientists because we have a perspective of what science can do and should do and we do not expect it to answer the ultimate questions of life. Yes, ma'am. I have lots of questions. Okay. And I'm going to group some of them together. Some qualities about Satan. 
Can Satan be in more than one place at a time, like God? Can Satan have power over nature, for example, tsunamis, tornadoes, etc.? Can Satan read my mind? And so, oh, I didn't hear the last one. Can Satan read my mind? Good question. My so, thoughts. is Satan able to be present at different places? Does he have power over physical forces? And can he read your mind? Again, inferences from things that are said. Satan, as a created being, does not appear to have the ability to be more than one place at one time. You don't really see angels doing that. that they do not seem to be omnipresent. In other words, they are discrete beings. So, no, that seems very unlikely. Can Satan read your mind? It does not appear that Satan has the ability to read your mind. Or demons have the ability to know what you are thinking. If you just watch me, you will know what I am thinking. Because it's, it's all right here on my face. So he doesn't need to read my mind. But no, there doesn't. I'm giving you the really short version of this. We go into more detail in that other series. But, and look at all the scriptures where you, you would get that inference. But no. Thirdly, does Satan have power over natural forces to the extent that God allows it? In other words, as you read the scriptures, you see that Satan can indeed do things we can't do and has some power over the natural world and natural forces, but only to the extent that God allows him to. That causes some interesting little problems in your mind. Think about that. About uh, Thursday, you're going to go, hey, wait a minute. Now I've got a question, but seriously, to the extent that God allows him to, is he powerful like God? Can he create? Can he make the weather happen? Can he make a basketball go in or not go in? No. You know, he, only to the extent that God allows that to happen. God is in control. Good question. Can demon possession, as is described in the Bible and the example given was Mark 1, verses 23 to 28, can that occur today? Can demon possession, I knew we were going to get this uh, question, so let me give you again the short answer to this. Uh, can demon possession happen today? I'm trying to give you the short answer. There, the Bible talks about uh, the influence of demons. Demons are angels, fallen angels, so they are these spiritual beings who are enlisted in Satan's cause to influence the world and to you to serve Satan. There is such a thing as demon possession clearly in the Bible. It's not explained away in the Bible as, oh, it was actually a physical ailment, not a demon. You really have to rule that out. There is a supernatural world, and supernatural things can happen. Demons appear to have, at least had, in some cases, the ability to inhabit and overcome the will of one who has, I would argue, has surrendered their will. Demons also have the ability to oppress, that's the word that's used in those circles. Think 2 Corinthians, where Paul says there was a thorn in the flesh by Satan to torment me. In other words, Satan's trying to influence me. God, can you help me? And God said, I have. I've given you all the grace you need. So inference is, yes, those things have happened. Can they happen today? My view on that, again, there's not a passage in the Bible that says, this is the exact answer, that's the exact answer. But I'm not going to duck it, I'll tell you. My understanding is, is it possible I think it's probably possible. In other words, there is a supernatural realm. Let me get more to the point, because I have a very definite opinion about a lot of things the Scripture says that you, here's what I want you to understand. You can't just walk out tonight and all of a sudden, without any desire on your part, I am possessed by a demon. 
I mean, I mean this seriously because I, I understand that can be worrisome. That is completely, to me, a very unscriptural idea, completely unscriptural. I'm going to contend, and I know that there are Christians who see this differently, but I feel very strongly in light of Ephesians 1.13, for example, amongst other things, where it says, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing God's blessing for you, your inheritance from God. In other words, he says, you are mine. I've sealed you, not with a ting barcode on your forehead, a Holy Spirit in you. I really, here's the short answer, do not think it is, there's no way in the world that a demon can come inside you when the Holy Spirit is inside you. Does that make sense? He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. This isn't even close. So let me just give you the short version and say, no, I do not believe that followers of Christ can be inhabited by demon. You are inhabited by the very Spirit of God. So I know there's more that can be said on that, but I'll just stop there. Okay. Um, God is supreme, no one above him. He created the angels. So where do the angels get their power? Where do the angels get their power? I'm just giving an opinion about this. Angels don't actually have power. It just looks powerful to you and me. It would be for example, okay, this is a bad example, I admit, but we have this dog named Daisy. <laughs> Daisy might be a demon. <laughs> Jury's still out. But when Daisy and I interact with each other, one thing I do like about Daisy, she thinks I'm wonderful. She thinks that I can magically make food appear. I mean, you and I look at Jesus Christ and the feeding of the 5,000. Daisy looks at me and says, every day you come home and food appears in my bowl. You are awesome, right? I look like I have powers to Daisy, right? I have the power to let her outside. This becomes very important to Daisy as she gets older. I need to go, right? I can open the door. Oh, you are amazing. All right, my point there is, is that to her, I look like I have powers. I don't have powers. I just have the abilities that I was born with. Angels are spiritual beings. In other words, they exist in this realm. They simply are what they are. Does that make sense? Now, to us, we don't exist in that realm. We see angels as they intersect, if you want to think about it that way with our realm, and we go, wow, you seem to have abilities I don't have. That's right. They have abilities that you and I don't have, but I believe those abilities are inherent to who they are and the kind of creatures that they are. So that, that's the way I would see that. Are there battles constantly going on in the heavenly realm, and why? Are there battles going on in the heavenly realms, and why? The Bible doesn't say this specifically, but you get the implication that, yes, there are. Uh, probably the biggest example is Daniel 10, I believe, where it talks about the idea of the angel of Israel being hindered with the battle with the followers of Satan. It's a long story, but you can read it and see. But you get the idea that angels are involved in the same struggle you and I are involved in. They're just involved in their realm. In other words, there is a battle in the spiritual realms of Satan in rebellion. The book of Revelation tells you how it's going to end. So don't worry about it. But it does mean that for God's purposes, for some reason, that Satan is allowed to continue his rebellion until the day that he will be destroyed. And the angels are engaged in this, and you and I are engaged in this. We happen to be engaged in the part that's called the kingdom of God retaking creation back from Satan. 
And that's why, by the way, this is so important that you understand when Paul says our battle is not fundamentally against flesh and blood. There are evil people. But Jesus said, I don't want you to look at people and think of them as evil and objects to be destroyed. He says, I will do any destroying that needs to be done. In other words, Jesus said, there is judgment day. He says, but you guys, I'd rather you think of these people as lost sheep. Remember all those parables about how Jesus says, look, I know these people are evil. I know they're doing bad things. They're doing evil things. They are deceived by Satan. They believe the lie. They behave in bad ways. He said, instead of destroying them, because he could have said, just go kill all the bad people. But he didn't. He said, no, actually, I want you to go love them because I want them to see the light and return. Does that make sense? This is important. This is a big deal to Christians as we see the world, people in the world, less as evil. Yes, they are doing evil things, but we tend to see them as reclaimable image bearers of God. That's a really different view. But yes, there is a struggle going on, ongoing, and we are part of it. Well, hopefully that's helpful and not too philosophical. I really wanted to get down to the idea of seeing Christians see the world for very good reasons. In other words, I think science done well, for example, in the end leads to God. I believe that is the ultimate truth of the universe. We should just be thrilled to go be scientists. We see the world differently, and I'm going to argue we see the world in a much healthier way than people who do not see that truth. And I just want you to understand that as you go out and the way you live your life you live it based on principles that are very reasonable. In other words, we actually believe there is a God. We believe that he exists outside of this reality, above this reality that he's created. We believe that there is a battle between good and evil. It's not just a bad person here and a bad person there and a bad dictator here. No, there's more happening here, and it explains the why of our existence. We happen to be followers of the all-powerful God who equips us with faith and hope and the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God. And so we are eager and victorious spiritual warriors. We're not trying to destroy people. We're trying to reclaim people. That's a really healthy way to think about it, okay? So this week, go out and be spiritual warriors. Be bold. What are my tools? Go exercise your faith. Trust in God and go reclaim some people who've been lied to and believed the lies of Satan. Next time, the history of everything. All right, we'll start at the beginning and explain everything humanity ever did. Thank you, guys.